We are back into our study, uh, moving into the second chapter of the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to our study of this uh, New Testament epistle. <clears throat> Philippians, we're starting in chapter 2. And uh, we're going to kind of sit down here from these few verses for the next couple of weeks, to this, uh, today and next week, looking at a very important uh, focus point that Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi. Philippians 2, chapter Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Listen as I read God's Word. <clears throat> if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that your word penetrates not only our minds, but by the power of your spirit who gave these very words, our hearts as well, the very core of our soul that you've created. Father, may the same spirit you, Holy Spirit, that wrote these words that now lives within us, um, remind us and give us reason to understand more deeply what it is you have for us to apply to our lives today. How to take this knowledge from your word and make it come alive by the power that you live within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Many of you know that we started Christ Community Church in the year 2000, 13 years ago, and uh, very few of you were here then, a few of you were, but most of you have been here in the past several years, maybe some even in the past year or so, but for those that haven't been here for the duration, you need to know that there has always been one blessing I have felt and believe to be true in the body of Christ in Christ Community Church, and that is God's gift of unity. We've had bumps and blunders along the way. We've all made mistakes. We've all struggled in different ways. But overall, God's always given us as a church the blessing of a church that is unified by His Spirit. Our staff is unified. Our elders and our deacons are unified. We're committed to one another. And we're committed to the body of Christ here. The body of believers, brothers and sisters, you are committed to one another. Even in our daily struggles with different aspects of what it means to be a brother and sister in the body, we are still unified by the power and the presence of God himself. And as God continues to grow this church in different ways, spiritually, numerically, relationally, in all sorts of manner, as he brings new families into our body, I've seen each one of them beginning to build deeper and growing relationships, loving one another and receiving compassion, receiving kindness from those that have been here before them. A church that is unified is a healthy church. A church that is unified is very healthy, and it's vital for believers in a church like Christ Community to have that desire to grow together and to reach out together to those who have not received the love and the grace of Christ. I also believe, though, it is a vital mark of church health that the evil one tries to attack. 
Church unity is a mark, is a place where the, the very uh, deceit and uh, pursuit of the evil one will try to destroy the church in this very particular place, the place where church finds itself unified together. And it happens in all sorts of ways. In 25 years of serving the Lord in His church, I've seen disunity be at the very source of many struggles in the local church. I've seen one or even just two people or families split a church right down the middle, completely wide open relationally, and disharmony will just invade that body. I'm not referring necessarily to doctrinal or theological disunity, though that exists, but I've seen more damage done spiritually through emotional and relational disunity than I have through theological or biblical disagreements. More than not, brothers and sisters in Christ struggle with one another in being disunified in the church than they do disagreeing on certain points of doctrine or so forth. We can disagree on points of theology or, or biblical understanding and those issues that especially that are non-essentials of the gospel, and yet we can have tremendous spiritual unity with one another. And we pray God continues to provide that. But there also needs to be unity between husband and wives in the body, between parents and their children, between siblings in a family, between leaders and other leaders in the same church, between the leaders and the congregation, the body of believers in the church, and between believers themselves in the body, brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters in the body of Christ. All these are vital points where unity must continue to flourish, to grow, and to become an abounding mark of the church I have seen disunity kill a church, more than one church. The first church that I served way back in the 1980s, the first church I was a youth pastor in, leadership, uh, I was there, and it was about eight years old when I left to go off to seminary. And while I was gone my first year and starting my classes, um, I looked back and they had hired a replacement to take my place on staff, and unfortunately it was not a unified relationship between the new staff and the senior pastor. And then there began disharmony between certain elders and other elders and between the pastor and the elders. And within a year, the church completely split wide open. After nine years of seeing God bless a growing, thriving, young congregation of almost 300 people, I saw it completely split. And to this day, the church exists but it's not the same. 20 years later, there's still remnants of what happened back then. When I began Christ Community, our family did in 2000. Uh, there was a church that was about the same age, 9 or 10 years old. It was a sister church in our community here in the greater North Cobb community. And in that first year of starting Christ Community, we saw that church begin to struggle within. And the pastor being a good friend of mine, I, I began to see and hear more of what was happening, and within a year, the church split right down the middle, and eventually they had to absolve and dissolve the entire body, and they failed to continue as a church even after a decade. You know, just like churches today, Paul knew that the early Christian church there in Philippi needed to be encouraged about this focus, 
point. It needed to be focused on what, it was imp- what was so important for them to impact the world around them. He knew that unity had to be the adorning necklace of the church. He knew it had to adorn the neck of the church so that all who would see, all who would notice and understand what, who Christ was and who he was leading in his church would see a unified body of followers. Now, we're going to be looking today at this section of Philippians, just the very first verse, verse 1. Next week, we'll be looking further into verses 2 through 4. But today, we're looking at what I would call, in a summary, the motivations for unity in the church. And then next week, we'll look at the marks of unity that Paul speaks of in the other verses. Paul's exhortation for unity is clearly, though, stated in verse 2. He says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and purpose. So, his desire is that they are one. They're one in spirit, they're like-minded, they're the same in purpose and in spirit and in love for one another. Unity in the spirit of God's presence is what Paul is desiring and continuing to exhort and encourage the Philippian church in. And he does so by bringing up in verse 1, Four motivations for how they can continue in the course of being unified together. As Paul begins in verse 1, he says, If, four times, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, and if any tenderness and compassion. Now, Paul's not saying if in the sense that you might think he's saying it. For example, it might seem he's saying, now, if you have any encouragement, because I don't really think you do, and I want to say you need to have this, he's not coming from that angle at all with the church. In fact, if you remember a few weeks ago, we discussed Paul's letter in its entirety was written to the church in Philippi as an encouragement one of the most, if not the most, encouraging letters he wrote to the local church that he was part of seeing established is the book letter to the church in Philippi. They were moving in the direction God called them. And Paul was very much supportive and encouraged by what he was seeing in them and reminded them of these things. So instead of saying it if, as in it's not because he believes it's there, he's saying because he knows that these things are there. And he wants to remind them that he sees these things in them, these motivations for unity, and he wants to remind them to continue. It's like he's saying, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and you do, I see, then let me remind you again of these things I bring of motivations for being unified together. And so, as Paul says this to the church in Philippi, he says these things to us today. I believe these are the same motivations we must consider for us to stay unified as a church, to grow in being unified as a church. If this morning you don't feel very unified with this body, ask yourself why. Why do I not feel very unified with brothers and sisters in my own church? It's important to think about that. If you do feel unified, 
That's very encouraging. Continue and ask the Lord how you might share that unity, that feeling and connectedness that you have with others who might not themselves feel the same way you do. How you might be a catalyst for greater bonds, greater connections with those in your own body of believers around you. You know, Paul's first motivation for unity is how we relate to Christ. Being united with Christ is our first motivation. Our unity with, uh, with each other is only possible because we are first unified with Christ. We can only be unified together to the degree that we are unified with Christ first. And most importantly, we cannot be any more unified with each other than we already are with Christ. And if we have not much unity with Him, we cannot have much unity with brothers and sisters in His family. Christ lives in us, and we live in Him. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you become a believer, one who has put your faith in Christ for all He's done for you on the cross, then He comes and dwells with you. He lives within you by His Spirit. His presence is with you always. And so you are one with Him. You abide in Him. He abides in you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, a familiar verse for many. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life I live, I no longer live myself, but I live in Christ because Christ lives in me. The old life is gone. The new life is Christ abiding in me and me in him. The living Christ lives and abides by his spirit within you and within me. And he's always present. Jesus reminds us of this intertwined relationship when he was teaching his disciples. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we really can do nothing without being intertwined, abiding with Christ, in Christ, and him in us. We can do nothing in our own flesh, nothing in our own strength. It's impossible for us. Unlike other religions of the world that have been around for centuries and thousands of years, we, as followers of Christ, have a dynamic living union with the God we worship. We have a living relationship with the one that we give worship to, that we give our hearts to. Unlike other religions, they don't have that dynamic union of relationship. It's a distant, often relationship based upon fear, often based upon performance or what they can do to achieve some means of acceptance to the God or gods that they seek to appease. But we don't have that fear. We don't have that struggle because Christ has made that relationship possible. Not just possible, but has made it vital, has made it abundant for us to have with Him on an hour-by-hour basis. 
The union that we have is very tangible. Your relationship with Jesus should be very tangible. You should know what it's like daily walking with him. And yet, this, relation, this union that we have is still somewhat mysterious. It's both very tangible and real, and we experience it daily, but yet it still has a sense of mystery. If I were to ask you, so explain exactly how your union of Christ, union with Christ, works out in a daily basis. Could you really explain it with words that would be adequate? You could try, so would I, but we would still fall short because to fully understand all that we have abiding in Jesus and Him abiding in us spiritually, that transaction ongoing for all eternity, it's just beyond our own comprehension. It's beyond words that we can fully describe it. Even the most educated theologian, if he were to try to describe the union of Christ with a believer, would probably fall short in the effort. The greatest thing about being united with Jesus is that it means all the barriers have been removed. You can't be united with someone if there's something between you and that person. You can't be united to anything if something is blocking that access point. But when we're, if, since we know, as Scripture has said, and Paul reminds us, we're united with Him, then the barriers have been removed. You see, that's the other side of the coin. Being united with Christ means there are no more barriers between you and Him. There's no more barriers that keep us from having a relationship with the living Christ. That's an amazing reality because God in Christ was willing and able to destroy every barrier between us and Him, especially the greatest barrier, our own sin, our own sin, keeping us from having a relationship with a perfect, holy God. He, do, he took that barrier down at the cross, and He removed it. We now have His presence in our life. And we can now understand that the barriers have been removed. We can move towards others who do not have an understanding of the barriers in their own life. We can move towards them without those barriers existing any longer. Racial barriers, ethnic barriers, gender barriers, economic barriers, generational barriers, all, and many, many more probably. All of these barriers in a church should just disintegrate. They should no longer exist because Christ abides in us. He abides in you, but He abides in us. And He has removed all those barriers. I remember a show way back when I was uh, dating myself, back in high school in the 80s. And uh, throughout that decade, there was a show, maybe some of you remember this old sitcom show called Cheers. It was a TV show. Yes, it was about a guy, and a, about a group of people in a bar. Um, but the whole kind of premise of the show was basically around this, the community of people in this little kind of pub. But what was so unique about this community of people is that they were all very different people, if you remember back to the characters in this particular sitcom. But what made them always appreciate and seek out to be in that community 
after work every day, on the way home, or wherever. Always being together was, there was an acceptance there with one another. They were accepted for just who they were. They all had their idiosyncrasies, their flaws, the weird things that they did or didn't do. But yet they were accepted in that place. And that's kind of what, what made the whole sitcom Cheers uh, a hit, was that it, it showed a place where someone, it says, knew your name. Someone accepted you. There were no barriers necessarily between those in that little community. And in a very small microcosm, much more greatly spiritually, we have the community of the family of God. And we have no reason to have barriers between us. So when you meet someone that you haven't maybe met before, or you're, you're, new, you're, you're newly meeting them in the community, and you come to find out that they have a common bond of a relationship with the living Christ, Immediately, there should be a bond there, an opportunity to engage that relationship, that new friendship or, or opportunity because of what we have being united in Christ. The first motivation we have for being unified is that we're unified because we're united in Christ. The second, Paul speaks of motivation in verse 1, if any comfort from his love. Whose love? Christ's love. That's the second motivation the love of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. You see, the love of Christ is the motivation for us to love one another, to be unified in love with others in our church. When you are struggling with a relationship with a brother or a sister in the body or outside the body, wherever in your life, the one thing that should melt your heart when it's struggling against that, that known direction that we all are being pulled to follow what Christ has, when we're struggling to want to re-engage or reunite with a relationship that has been broken or been strained, the one thing that should melt your heart should be remembering and recounting and renewing your understanding to how much Jesus loves you and what he's done for you. If you think about how much the love of Christ has done for you, there is no way that you're, if you really, really, truly grasp it, can continue to carry the burden of a grudge or resentment or anger or bitterness against someone else. Maybe in your family, your extended family, there has been a, a, a break or something's happened in a relationship that you've experienced in the past years. And deep down, you still struggle. I know in our extended family, there's one family member that really hurt another person in our family. And I was talking with them this past week, and they say, you know, I've forgiven that person for what they did. This is over almost a decade ago. I, forg I really have forgiven them for what they did, but I just cannot stand to be in the same room with them. And I understand what they meant and how they felt. And it still hurts. Sometimes we can do things that hurt deeply for years. 
Maybe this morning you have something that has broken your heart years ago, and it's still there. The love of Christ can bring that up and can heal that hurt. It can put the balm of healing. The love of Jesus can put the balm of healing over that hurt can cover it, can renew it, can turn it from what it truly is, which is not something that you desire in your own heart, and make it into something that God can be glorified with. His love is our motivation to be one with each other. To the degree that we grasp the magnitude of Christ's love is to that degree that we'll be able to extend that same love to each other. If you do not grasp, as Paul wrote, the depth and the height and the width and the great magnitude of the love of Christ, if you cannot grasp that, you will not be able to reach others with that same love, to reach out and extend yourself very much to others. But if you do truly embrace that, you can move towards others in that same love, in that same power of the love of the Spirit of Christ that He's put within you. Even if you're an introvert, even if you're not an extrovert, someone who is real gregarious and a life of the party, you can still move towards one person at a time with the loving hands, the loving perspective of Christ, and to reach out to them to to extend yourself to someone else in all types of manner, that they would see the love of Christ and feel that love of Christ being shared with them. If you find believers in a church loving one another, it will be there you'll find unity. When believers, brothers and sisters, are loving each other, you will find them unified. You can't have unity without love, without the love of Christ. It just cannot exist. It is not possible. Think about it. When someone in the body of Christ, when someone in Christ Community Church extends you a kindness, when they extend compassion to you, maybe they make a meal for you when you're sick or they help out with something that you need around the home or something in your life, they they come alongside a text or an email or a phone call of support or letting you know that they prayed for you and something that you asked them to pray for and you prayed for it and you asked them, how did that go? Whatever it is, but when you are extended that kind of kindness and care unconditionally, it dra- what does it do to you? It draws you closer to that person. When someone extends that kind of kindness to you, it, it draw- you, you have good, warm thoughts about that person. You have, a, you have an appreciation of that relationship more deeply than you did prior to that. And the same happens when you extend care and kindness and compassion to someone loved to someone else they are feeling the love of christ through you to them and they're drawn closer to you in the body because of that it happens that way god's designed it that way loving one another is vital to be unified i'm not talking about a church program it's not Loving one another 101, class meets at 9.30, and I'll, I'll, I'll teach how to do this. It's not a church program. It's not a small group. It's not a class. It is Christ in you loving someone else. You being loved by Christ in someone else. 
that's what it is. It's organic. It's just, it's just being the body of Christ with each other, doing life together by loving one another. Whenever something arises and you hear about it, you move towards that need if you can at all do so. If someone else has beat you to that need, well, great. But move towards needs as you hear about them, loving one another as you hear and see and come to understand. And as you have needs, you express them. Don't keep them to yourself. Don't keep your needs to yourself. Extend them so that others may pray for you, but also come alongside you and care for you. You're meant to be cared for in the body of Christ. It's important. So often, it's harder for us to receive care than it is to give to others. We have to receive care as well. We have to have that same spirit of love. The third motivation that Paul speaks out in verse 1 is about the Holy Spirit and having fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He says, if any fellowship with the Spirit, and you do have fellowship with the Spirit, how do you know if you have fellowship with the Spirit? How do you know if you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in your own walk with the Lord? Well, the first question you have to answer is, do you know Him? Do you know the Lord in your life, first of all? Do you know the living Christ? Do you have a relationship with Him through faith, trusting in Him for your eternal security, your sin being covered, your life in Him? Do you have that, first of all, vital union with Him? If you know you do, then how do you know you have fellowship with His Spirit? Well, the Spirit resides in you. If you know Christ, then you do have His Spirit. 1 John 4 says, We know that we live in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We know because He's given His Holy Spirit to be in you. But more than just possessing the Holy Spirit, we're called to live by the Spirit. You can possess the Holy Spirit as a Christian, but you can also quench the Holy Spirit. You can, in a sense, have the Holy Spirit's fullness not as full as He desires to be, as God desires for His Spirit to be in you by your own choices and how you choose to follow and listen to the leading and the guidance of the Spirit by His Word. Galatians chapter 5, a familiar verse, or verses, <clears throat> 5.16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit is regularly following and listening through time in God's Word, through prayer and meditation, to communing with the Lord in our vital relationship and union with Him, that His Spirit leads us and we listen and we are reminded of what truth is in our life. I've said this before and it's worth reminding both myself and all of us who value so highly the truth of God's Word. 
and we value very highly in our church, sound doctrine based from God, coming from God's truth. If light is God's truth and heat is God's spirit, you can have light, but sometimes very little heat. Meaning, sometimes we can have the truth and the knowledge of the Word of God. And it's truth. It is truth. But that's all we're seeking to have is just knowledge. Knowledge without the presence and vitality of the Spirit's fullness living in us and through us. And when that happens, there is no heat of God's presence by His Spirit. There's just light of truth. And God desires for both to be present. Both understanding and His truth to light the path, Psalm 119, but also the very power and presence of His Spirit. We need to have a relationship and fellowship with the Spirit of God. I know many churches that are very doctrinally sound, very doctrinally sound, and teach the Bible rightly. They teach the Scriptures correctly, but often their worship of the one who gives the truth is passionless and weak and void of much of the heat of the Spirit of God. Their relationships with one another are often cool and distant in the body because there's no true cooperative presence of the Spirit of God with one another, moving from and in and around and through and towards one another as they apply and understand and share the truth of God's Word. You just can't be a Spirit-filled church and be disconnected, be disunified with each other. You can't be one and the other. When the Spirit of Christ is at work in a body of believers, there is a distinct presence of powerful, Spirit-filled unity. Unity that overlooks our flaws and our failures, the things that we struggle with one another in. It overlooks those things, it moves past them, and it thrives on the presence of the Spirit of God. Thrives on it between brothers and sisters in that church. Fellowship of the Spirit. The last motivation is the compassion of Christ. He says, if there's any tenderness and compassion. Well, obviously, compassion as we know it, if we have any, doesn't come from ourselves. Tenderness towards one another is not something that we can just muster up in our flesh. Compassion for someone else kindness and tenderness towards someone who's hurting, who's in a position of need, and we see that, that directly comes from the source of the living Christ. That comes from His very presence. This final and fourth motivation for unity is experiencing ourselves the compassions of Christ. And then when we experience them, Christ's mercy and His compassion we're drawn to Him even more, and we're able then to move towards others in that same compassion, in that same mercy and same sense of need that they have. Matthew chapter 9, a familiar passage when Jesus was moving through the towns and villages. It says, He went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. That's amazing just to stop right there. He moved throughout healing every disease and sickness. I mean, that, I just wish I could have been there for a day to watch him heal diseases and sicknesses of all kinds. But it says, as he did this, when he saw the crowds, and he had crowds many times through the miracles he was performing, he had, it says, compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus didn't look upon these who were coming in these masses, many who need, wanted and needed to be healed, and, say, and he didn't look upon them and say, yeah, all you're coming is for what you want from me. He knew their hearts. He knew who wanted what. He knew how they were approaching him. He also knew that they were spiritually harassed and helpless. He knew their spiritual need, their condition, and it says that he had compassion. He had compassion on them because he saw how harassed and helpless they were. That was the heart of God expressing itself in those towns and villages like sheep without a shepherd. Who's the best candidate? Who is the very best candidate to receive Christ's compassion. Can you describe that person? Who would be the best person to receive the compassion of Christ? Think about it. Who would be the best candidate to receive the concerns of Christ himself towards them? Well, the answer is simple. The best qualified candidate to receive the compassion of Christ is someone who is harassed and helpless. Here's the problem. We don't see ourselves as being harassed and helpless enough. I'm helpless. I am spiritually harassed. I'm harassed by the world. I'm harassed and helpless by the devil himself. And I'm harassed and helpless because of my own flesh. Daily. The world, the flesh, and the devil, all three make me helpless, make me harassed. Hour by hour, I am in that state. Therefore, I must have the compassion of Christ. I must have His compassion. You must have His compassion. And as you understand just how helpless and harassed you are, then you see how great his compassion is. And as you come to receive that great compassion for your own life, and you experience it, and you receive it, and you are built up and renewed in him through his compassions and mercy for your very soul, your very life in him, you can then move towards others with that same power and presence of his spirit and be compassionate to someone else. Some of you may say, well, you know, my personality, I'm, I'm really a type A more. I'm not a real compassionate type person. I, I'm real, not real feeling-oriented, and that's not what I'm talking about. If Christ is in you, you will see the needs of others. I'm a type A, my personality. All of you know that. I'm a type A, but yet I see a need 
It's because Christ's compassion gives me the eyes to see that, and I want to move towards that. I can't shed a tear on my own. It's hard enough in Christ for me to shed tears many times. But I do, and it's only because His compassion moves me to. It moves me to want to see others receive the same encouragement of Christ's compassion that He's given me. Do you desire for someone near you to receive that same compassion? If you do, and hopefully you do, then move towards them. Become more unified with them in the body or outside the body, that Christ would be glorified, that we would be more unified as His church.